Welcome to Those Who Do Podcast, a podcast about people, their passions, their vocations, and their interests. I'm Zach Barclay, here with the donkey to my Shrek, Tony Forsmark. Joe Stillman is an Academy Award and Emmy-nominated BAFTA-winning writer known for Shrek 1 and 2, Beavis and Butthead, and the adventures of Pete and Pete. Joe talks to us about creativity, life, and serendipity. Please enjoy Those Who Do, Creativity and Writing with Joe Stillman. I had this really great Jufro. Do you guys take insurance? You guys swing it on. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, today we are here with Joe Stillman. He is a writer. He has uh, worked on many, many, many projects that we'll get into today. We're, I'm very excited to talk to you, Joe, because I am fascinated with the creative process. And as a writer, your process is very unique to creation in my eyes because it goes to the visual medium but it's on paper and every writer seems to work differently so i'm really uh, excited to get into the nuts and bolts of your process specifically you know that this podcast is is called those who do and, and it's really kind of less about the thing that's done and more about the person who's doing it so I'm very excited to be able to pick your brain today and find out what your process is. But thanks, the, thanks for that. And thank you for for uh, welcoming into your home and and for participating in this because it's again I'm very excited about this. But like I said, since it's the whole process, everything that you do with the thing you do is built upon who you are as a person. We need to get to know Joe, right? So little Joey, when he was a child. You, you grew up in New York, right? Is that correct? Am I, am I correct in that information? Let me go get my Afro wig and um, <laughs> because I, I had this really great Jufro oh, yeah. just to get in character of Little Joey. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You're asking, like, where did Little Joey grow up? Yeah. Yeah. What was Little Joey's uh, life like when he was Little Joey? Were you in a creative household? Uh I suppose yes and no, which is to say no. Um <laughs> Um, I grew up in the suburbs of, of New York. I don't know how well you know that area. Um, uh, but north of New York City, by about 35 minutes, uh, mm -hmm. there's all these little, would you call them bedroom communities, I guess? You know, back in the days, you know, people would commute to New York, you know, the madmen and right. whoever yeah. else. So anyway, that, that's where I grew up. So as, as, a, as a child, what were your interests between the ages of, you know, when you start developing your core interests right around your five, six, seven years old, and then you kind of grow from those. What were your interests as a child, tween, and then teenager? Pre-masturbation, we're saying. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, pretty yeah. much once that yeah. happens, you have one interest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Well, I, I was just, you know, trying to um, survive um, what seemed like, you know, I don't know. Life didn't seem like great. To me when i was a kid you know school seemed kind of like awful in a way okay. um so i wasn't like loving the show terribly but then towards the end of high school there was an opportunity in my high school called the alternative school or the a school and that was um a program uh, that was fairly small there were maybe 30 kids in it maybe even less and 
you got to design your own um, classes. In other words, you got mm. to decide oh. what you wanted to do. And the, the A school would contact um, people in town to say, be a teacher. I'll give you an example. One class I took was uh, going to the ACLU. And several of us would go once or twice a week. And we would kind of just to help out around the office sure. and yeah. learn about it. And another class I took was creative writing class because I was really interested in that. And there was a this this woman um, who basically oversaw what I was doing as I wrote a short story um, right. over the course of a semester. Yeah. And then there was this one place called, um, I think it was called The Loft. It was in a town near my town. I grew up in a town called Eastchester and this town was Bronxville. And... They made videos. They, you would not videos, actually, it was like animation, it was films, mm -hmm. um, shot on film because we didn't really work in video back then. And so, just by chance, I got to, to do that. And um, I didn't really have, like, I would say a vision. It never really seemed to me as a kid that writing was even an option. Um, it just seemed like that was something that other people did, but something um, you enjoyed. Yeah, I was I was mm. doing it. I was liking it. I would sometimes write some funny stuff here and there, but mostly it just seemed like distant. Like I, I would see John Boy Walton um, write in his journal <laughs> yeah. at the end of the episode, and I thought, "Gosh, that is cool," but never really, you know, put two and two together that a, that a person, a regular person, could do that. Um, but being in the A school. Um, kind of like opened up those doors. And because those doors were opened, when I went around to colleges, um, that kind of like pushed open a couple of other doors. And so I, I just wound up through serendipity, honestly, getting into the film department at um, Ithaca College. Mm -hmm. and, and just to say, because it's worth saying, you cannot underestimate the importance of serendipity, especially in a young life, but really for, for all of us. Because at least in my case, I'm not really smart enough to, to kind of like plan my life. Some things just kind of have to come to you and, 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 and force you to go, oh, yeah, maybe that. But I think even if you do plan things, it, it, you have to rely on serendipity to, to make, you know, like you're hoping these things happen even if you make a plan, you know, that it, right? Right on. Yeah. There's like knowing what you want, but there's also like the force of human will and that only gets you so far. Exactly. And, you know, anybody who's made it has had that mostly. Okay. Some people maybe have had things handed to them. Who knows? You know, and they that, that can't have that plan. But I was lucky that X, Y, or Z happened along the way. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. Right. Man, the importance of grace, you know, on some level, you call it grace or serendipity or luck. For me, it makes me think like we're not really quite alone as we think. Sometimes the, the brain, you know, like goes, okay, this is what I want. This is on me. And I'm going to like think about this and nothing else until it happens. And that's not really the best approach for creation, right? right? Yeah, we've talked uh, previously about how being myopic is a, can be a terrible hindrance to any kind of uh, creative process because then you're not experiencing everything that's going on around you. Right. So if you are singularly focused, how much of a mess it can cause for you because you're not paying attention to the other opportunities, Yeah, the other opportunities, yeah. just the other things that are happening in your life, you know, and you might miss that serendipitous moment 
because you aren't focused. You're too focused on the, the, the actual specifics of what you think is supposed to be your track. You know, um, it sounds like the A school is very formative for you and kind of the, the, oh, totally. the place where you found your people. Um, was there a mentor or someone that kind of stepped in and said, Hey Joe, I think, I think this is working for you. I think this is something that you're good at. Or was that more at, at Ithaca? Yeah. That was, uh, well, just to say in terms of mentors, I just want to give a shout out to Alan Block who created the A school Okay, um, because it gave, it gave a lot of people some opportunity. And, you know, one of the issues that I have in general with public education is because it's it has to be an institution because mm -hmm. there are so many people involved. You know, it it doesn't really lend itself towards um, a, an individual's discovery. Specialization and individuality. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, there's just so many cubby holes or blocks, you know, in the institution. It's understandable, right? Because it has to service so many people. Um, but it doesn't necessarily give you what you need, you know, for you to kind of pick up something new and flourish. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it exists anymore back in, in the high school that I went to, but I think it's such a great alternative to- Oh, I love that model. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, because there are, there are kids who just don't fit until they fit, you know, that don't find their people. I've got a daughter like that right now that she's really struggling. And in Iowa, they've taken the arts pretty much out of elementary school. I mean, they have a music class and an art class, but as far as orchestra, band, any type of theater, it's just not happening in elementary school. And it really hamstrings kids from finding their people, which is so important prior to junior high school, which is hell on earth. You know, you know, they're either getting ready. They need allies. They need people to back them up when the bullies are chasing them down the hall, you know, and they don't find those people as easily if they don't fit into the, the math reading, um, gym mindset, you know, so it's really unfortunate and places like the A school would be beneficial. I think everywhere. It would be great. I think just to have just in general, you know, to get, because first of all, we're not empowered when we go to school, right? If it, mm -hmm. it's kind of the opposite, we're told what to, where to go at what time, what you're going to do during the block of time that you're in the classroom. And it's, it's basically not giving you any choice or, or impetus to kind of like really um, grow like new material in yourself. Well, and, you, you were probably around the same time. I don't know if you had this, but when we would do the punch card thing about what you're going to do for, uh, for a vocation, do you remember those? Uh, you, you take a little quiz probably junior high, maybe freshman year. And they were like, okay, this is what you're, you should be looking towards doing. Like these are your options. These are your options. I mean, it's like, you know, based on these little question and answer punch cards that this, you know, and it's like, well, what if I don't want to do those things? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I, I, I sort of don't knock it in a way just because it's not like the only factor in going back to the idea of serendipity, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I think there's more to meets the eye in the process of being alive on earth for a human being. And, and so school is like part of that process. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that in, in, in this case at East Chester High School, um, this fellow, Alan, you know, created opportunities that would not have, you know, normally existed. Which it's great. I, I, I mean, I wish there was more opportunities like that. And, and you know, and in larger metro areas, I think there are alternative schools and arts-based schools and stuff. But, you know, it, it, it's just so strange how different parts of the country handle education differently. You know, there's different uh, different focus put on whether or not education is important or the arts are important. And it's like, well, it can all be important. 
you know and but i think exposure to real life like you were saying with the aclu i mean that's that's something people are actively doing i think that's invaluable i mean just to to have exposure to it i mean whether that's not that's your thing or something but you know a lot of kids don't have exposure to you know jobs other than what they hear about firemen policemen teacher doctor you know i mean and what their folks do but to be able to have that opportunity to go and see what other things are out there is you know yeah it's fascinating just to even see how an office runs i mean just to have experiences other than Mm -hmm. inside a classroom yeah 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 it might pare down on all the people that are business majors when they realize how (laughs) uninteresting (laughs) those jobs may end up being so at ithaca you you started doing some things in film as well then well you know i i i Drove up to Ithaca with the intention of becoming a TV major, not because I really had any idea of what that would involve, because I, I, I didn't. It's just that I, I like TV. It had a lot of pretty colors on it, and it seemed really cool. Mm-hmm. It involved like cameras and technology. And while I was up there, you know, meeting them to see about whether or not I'd be admitted to the school, you know, um, somebody sent me over to this fellow, Skip Landon, over at the film department, and he was a chairman there. And I happened to have come up with this like little animated short that I had made at the loft in Bronxville. And Skip saw it, and and without when he saw it, I mean, he saw the actual physical reel. He didn't see the film, but he didn't need to see the film. He just said, "Hey." Maybe you should consider becoming a cinema major. And he was this like fatherly figure. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, yeah, fatherly figure. I will listen to what you say. And, and so you I did. Wise. I will. <laughs> I will take your advice. Yes. And I, I didn't have it anything in mind in particular. Again, I, I guess I go to serendipity because uh, I knew nothing about film. I, I never really heard of directors. I was just like any civilian. I just assumed they just existed and people didn't really work on them per se. They just existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but being a film major there was amazing, right? Because back then we were shooting film in 16 millimeter black and white. They were able to, they had a black and white processor for 16 millimeter film at the school. Mm-hmm. So it was really relatively cheap to make films and you got to do that like every single year. And that is that was that is such a great educational experience just to be able to to get your hands on. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I know. Like, I went to we went to Iowa State, and it's the smaller theater program, and the ability to get up on stage more than you would say NYU or another place was invaluable. Just be able to do that thing as much as you can, whether or not it's you know a plus work or whatever. It's just just getting yourself out there and doing it. Yeah. The importance of a small venue, you know, for me, it was, you know, Ithaca College versus a friend who went to NYU mm-hmm. and it was so hard to make films at NYU. Mm-hmm. And and same, you know, like in the working world, you know, like when writers are starting out um, and I've seen a bunch on the picket line, right? Because you have a lot of pre-WGA writers. And, and the fact is you start out, one way to start out is to start out in smaller venues. You know, I started out at Nickelodeon back mm-hmm. when cable was still fairly new. And, and and having a small world, you know, when you're just at that at that embryonic stage is, is just really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. Oh, having a community that, yeah, it's not like this huge amorphous thing like the Guild is great, but it, it's like it's not a, as tight-knit as your original community would be. Right? right. Yeah. And just getting the repetitions and the opportunity, like 
you were talking about, Tony, of getting those 10,000 repetitions in so that you can feel comfortable and it's not like a stressor every time you sit down to do something is, is there's a lot to be said for that. When you take off the expectation, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. um, boy, does that, you know, just Freeze give you up. room to mm. kind of do things that you wouldn't normally do. Yeah. And well, I know we'll talk about like current stuff eventually, but expectation is like so rough. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, we'll, expectation we'll keep going. deadline. Yeah. Uh, so what was your function in, when you did these films? Uh, what, were you writing them, uh, directing them? In school, mm-hmm. uh, writing and directing. Mm-hmm specific genre that you played with more often or were you trying everything? Well, it was was the first year, freshman year at Ithaca College. I don't know if they still do it because it was a long time ago. Pardon me while I just quickly dunk my head in the toilet as I think about how long ago that was. (laughs) Actually, I don't feel bad. I used to feel bad about that, but I don't now. No, it was a long, long time ago and I graduated in 1980 Mm -hmm. and, um, in freshman year, everybody in the film department, no matter what your expectation was of the kind of career you would have, everybody made what was called a doorknob movie. And um, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, the only criterion of the assignment is is that uh, somebody had to be killed by a doorknob. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, that's a hook, right? <laughs> totally. I love it. And so that was what you did freshman year. And, and I, uh, I'm, I'm, I will, I hope this isn't pride or hubris. It's probably pride, but definitely not. This is not a hubris event. Um, but I, I won the uh, golden doorknob my freshman year. <laughs> and, uh, what so was your doorknob death in your, in your film? The, uh, the, the basic idea was, uh, there was a, a kid, um, a guy who was um, writing a suicide note because uh, it was his birthday. It was a silent film, right? Because freshman year, you you make silent films. And uh, uh, he was really upset because nobody remembered his birthday. And so he was going to kill himself. And so in the film, there's three attempts that he makes to kill himself. And one, he um, takes a, he's in the bathtub and he takes a toaster and um, puts it in the bathtub mm-hmm. with him. And the whole building shorts out and he basically lights a lighter because like it just didn't it work, didn't work. So yeah, yeah. one thing after another doesn't work and finally decides to hang himself and he ties something to the ceiling ties it to the doorknob it it doesn't work the thing comes out of the Pulls ceiling his, yeah. and as he's untying the doorknob the door opens smashes him and kills him <laughs> and it's uh, everybody there to celebrate his birthday oh no yeah so, oh, there you go Fantastic. I'm, I feel a little weird having told you that, but anyway, that was Ithaca College fun. Would you call that serendipity for him at that point? <laughs> I, I'm afraid I would, yes. I guess serendipity is a double-edged sword. I was actually just in Ithaca in June. Really? We, yeah, we went up to check out the Finger Lakes area, and it is beautiful. Have you ever been up there? Mm-hmm. there? No, it, it is beautiful. beautiful. I mean, they have like 400 waterfalls i mean there are waterfalls everywhere found a great pizza place uh, in town that was delicious yeah. upstate new york yeah is, it's very pretty it's really amazing and we almost skipped that part we did a whirlwind trip of the east east coast new england area and we almost skipped the finger lakes area and i'm so glad that we didn't because it was one of my favorite stops on the whole yeah. trip so it's beautiful up there so uh from ithaca to to la how how does that was there a new york stop there or oh not just a stop. <laughs> um, so I uh, got a job out of Ithaca. I don't know how interesting this is for your, your audience, but I'll, I'll be quick about it. 
while I was in school in Ithaca, um, a graduate, an alumni fellow there um, who I was introduced to by Skip Landon, um, the head of the department, mm -hmm. he introduced me to this fellow, Michael Spolin. And Michael was a trailer cutter. Um, you're familiar with trailers. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had worked at this really big trailer house in New York and eventually he started his own business. And so I, I, I worked for him for a summer and then after school wound up just working for him uh, full time as an assistant editor, um, but also as a copywriter. Mm -hmm. I, when I was in L I was in an internship, the same alumni dude, um, his name was, um, and is Richard Smith. He created this amazing, um, internship for me my my senior year brought me out to la where i okay. worked at all these different places and while i was there um michael um my trailer boss i wasn't working for him at the time but he came out to uh do a trailer for frank zappa uh zappa had produced uh, independently a movie called baby snakes and he was gonna four wallet which is to say just like open it himself in some theaters mm -hmm. and so he hired michael to do the trailer and i because michael's regular trailer writer, copywriter was in New York. He just had me take a swing at uh, doing a couple of scripts. So it worked out really well. So after college, he he hired me to be an assistant editor and, and write trailer copy. Do you, do you feel like that that experience helped you uh, in short form, like uh, comedy thing? Like you you started off with the Nickelodeon things, and that's fairly short form, right? Right. Uh, do you feel like you know having that the experience of cutting trailers and telling that you know short story of the of the of the movie helped? Totally, totally, yeah. enormously, and 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 for the reason that you're talking about, I think, which is craft, mm -hmm. because. Uh, because just a lot of craft is required in, in any form, but in the short form in, in particular, you have to be so disciplined. Mm -hmm. But there's a, another thing, you know, after college, I did what a lot of people do, which is I began writing spec screenplays. Mm. My intention was to write something that would just shake the world mm -hmm. to its core, uh, cost Steven Spielberg to fly me out to <laughs> California. Um, lead to a lot of romance and um, a sense of well-being and <laughs> perhaps even some money um, and basically make me into the kind of person that I, I felt that I needed to be in order to um, be okay with myself. In other words, just like another Hollywood guy, basically. Um, and that really wasn't happening. Um, I would write one script and um, think for a short time that I was, you know, like, I might as well just start start packing my bag because mm -hmm. I, I was going, only to realize afterwards that it was you know anything but um, what I was hoping it would be. Um, but during that time, and it was a long time, it was about ten years, honestly. Um, I was making a living uh, after after Michael disbanded his own trailer company, I started making a living as a copywriter in movie trailers. And I worked for a lot of companies in New York. I was still New York based. And there was a fair amount of trailer work happening then. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually trailer work started to decline in New York. And so I started to work in places like Nickelodeon writing promos. And there was a lot of promo writing to be done. Uh, this is on-air promos. And that still goes on. I know people who make a pretty good living writing sure, um, right. on-air promos, even here out in LA. And what happened is um, 
I was kind of failing fairly miserably as a as a burgeoning screenwriter or would-be screenwriter, but I kept getting a good amount of work and having a great time and meeting people in the promo department. And so I took on a full-time job at Nickelodeon Promos, where I met a lot of friends who I still have today. And um, two of those friends, uh, their names are uh, Will McRobb and Chris Viscardi, also in the promo department. They had created a, a, a minute-long vignette series, on-air uh, vignette series for Nickelodeon called The Adventures of Pete and Pete. And uh, it was brilliant and it was great. And they did amazing work. And Nickelodeon eventually had them do a series of specials, 30-minute specials. Now, when you're a promo writer uh, and you write in 10-second, 30-second, and if you're really, really lucky, you write in 60-second 60 right. 60 yeah. increments. And so when two of our guys, um, uh, or two of our number, let's like take out the gender part of it, get to work in a 30-minute forum, you're like... I hate your guts. I envy you. How could that happen? Why did that happen to me? But it's amazing, right? Because it's like, it's a little bit like you're, you're, you're penned in and you see two of your, your fellows get out yep. and you're like, oh my God, the grass is green. It's green over there. It it's brown over here. I want to go over there. And eventually there are specials. I forget how many there were. There were three, maybe maybe as many as six. Eventually, uh, Jerry Laybourne, who was president of Nickelodeon or head of Nickelodeon, said, let's do season one. Let's just do a season and, and do 13 episodes. And because I, I know them so well, I was one of the people who got to audition, you know, and and this is so great. This is an interesting story to me anyway. To audition to write for that show, what you had to do is write a 60-second interstitial Pete and Pete in the voice of the show. And it's a great idea, right? Because it tests you mm -hmm. to see if you have the voice. Know the tone. But and, you don't yeah, have yeah. to write a whole episode, mm -hmm. right? Something mm -hmm. that's 60 seconds, which is actually a fierce test because, you know, making something work in 60 seconds is tough. Mm -hmm. And so I did that and I got to be the guy that they hired, you know, to write episodes uh, for season one. And so I got to do that. And that, blowing my mind, led to being hired to be full on uh, as, a, I guess, a story editor, which is a title that they have at, at, at cable uh, for seasons two and three. And it was like so great. After working like in my little place, mm -hmm. in my dark little place for like all those years to have a uh, this wonderful show because we loved it. I loved it. We all did. It was just weird and funny and and um, and just a great. I don't know. It's just this moment that every now and again you get to work on a show that feels really kind of special. Right. And that was the show. Well, you've been lucky to be on that and a couple of times, at least a few times. I mean, based on what I know of your work and what I, what I appreciate. I mean, there's some seminal stuff for uh, a lot of people in your, in your background. Beavis is a perfect example of what Tony's talking about. There are so many shows between when Beavis and, and Butthead first came out and now that would never have existed because you had an animated show that was very counter to what I won't call it counterculture, but it was very counter to what culture was at the time. I know it's a weird way to say that. But after Beavis and Butthead came on, adults were going, OK, it's not just The Simpsons. We, there's other stuff for us to watch that we're going to get the joke, too, and that maybe we don't want to let our kids watch. 
you know, <laughs> and and it kind of blew open the the animation genre. I feel like because I remember watching Beavis and Butthead and going, "What the hell is this?" I love it, you know, because it spoke to me as my interests and and you know, I I was nobody hurt me here, okay, but I was never a Simpsons guy because it just didn't click for me. I couldn't, it was, I don't know if it was too clean. Um, it was too, uh, sanitized, which is weird to say about Simpsons, but to be on the forefront of something that blew open, probably the ability for things like family guy, uh, and, and American dad and all these things that were geared towards it. South park, I would argue Beavis and, but there would be no South park without Beavis and butthead. So it's exciting. Um, and, and it had to have been a wild ride to been involved with something like that. I would say it was just plain old fun yeah. for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because I had written in promos, right? And and you know, your your palette is really, really small mm. in promos. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about the amount of time that you have, you know, to tell a, a story, a 30 second story mm -hmm. or whatever, but you know, you're what you're able to say and where you're able to go, and you're basically promoting a show. Right. Um, whereas Beavis was like, there's none of that whatsoever. Yeah. And I had been writing, you know, like a bunch of spec screenplays at that point. And so it felt, Beavis felt kind of cinematic to me because you were telling, um, like an 11 minute movie, mm -hmm. sure, 11 right. minute story, and you could be cinematic, you know, with it and do things that you would like want to do in a movie, but not you wouldn't necessarily be able to do. Sure. I'm going to give you an example, um, which feels a little self-serving, but I, I, I don't think it is too much anyway. Uh, the first step, the first thing I did, the first thing I pitched on Beavis and, and, and got, to, got to write was an episode where they're uh, skeet shooting. And um, they're just like, you know, those guys being able to fire guns, of course, is like, just like, such a such a it's, it's such a, goal, a kick life goal <laughs> and, yeah. and so they're they're shooting and you cut to an airplane overhead and they're just you know giving their standard you know spiel over the radio you know tower this is blah 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 and their shot comes in and 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 kills the pilot and uh basically they shoot down the plane and uh, the once the plane is down, all the passengers are trapped inside, and they need somebody to from the outside to get them out. And Beavis and Butthead just kind of laugh and and walk away. The reason I bring that up as an example is it it does feel kind of a little bit like cinema because it's I'm not sure really I don't have the words to explain why it is, but just when you are able to cut away to something that's completely different and have these two worlds kind of impact each other and have something really kind of big happen. And you're allowed to do it in a, in right. a show. Um, that was kind of mind blowing for me. For, for me. I mean, during that time, I mean, it, it's you know the young ones, kids in the hall. I mean, there was. I mean, we're just prior to that. So I mean, did that influence you guys' work at all? As far as you know, just avant garde and being able to just have the freedom to do whatever. Because and then for me, that's what Beavis and Butthead brought to the table is everything's on the table. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is. I think that's a good way to put it. And it was, you know, and that almost never happens. I mean, it, I've worked in, in the business for a long time after that. And, you know, there's n almost never an instance where everything's on the table. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. So it felt like there was an air of freedom in that. 
yeah an open space for that to be to happen i mean i'm going to move ahead a little bit but well, before you get too far ahead i have to ask was there ever something that you pitched on that show that they're like no we, we can't do that we think that is too much even for beavis and butthead um, nothing that I pitched in particular, but at a, at a certain point, uh, fire became oh, the remember. thing that we were yep. not allowed to um, speak or, or yep. deal with. I remember that. was that. a, a fire. real liability. Yeah, fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I, 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 I remember that happening. It was, it was kind of a weird feeling to know that all of a sudden it kind of felt like the show – you know, moms against fire, whoever came out, you know, against it was, it was tried to neuter the show a little bit. And it was kind of a weird, you know, even as a kid, I'm going, but I know I'm not supposed to play frog baseball. Like, I know <laughs> that I'm not supposed to set my sister on fire. Like, I know these things and you're taking the joy that I get from these two idiots <laughs> doing it. You know, they, they are my outlet. If I can watch them do it, that means I don't have to do it. And it was, it, was, it kind of reminds me back of the old, uh, when Dee Snyder was dealing with, who was the, was it Tipper Gore? Yeah. That came out and, you know, tried to stop all the, the, the music from having any kind of language in it. And it's just like, what a weird thing to pick to be your thing, to rally against. is two cartoon characters that are horrible people saying fire. <laughs> It's so yeah. crazy to me. It just didn't make any sense, but alas, I guess. Well, now we're now we have book banning and yeah. So we're, yeah, we're, it's I believe all that stuff. Yeah, we're all back. <laughs> I mean, there's a, a degree of that. I mean, I know it's it's an adaptation, but with Shrek, there's a, 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 a you had, how much freedom was there for you reached different audiences. Uh, it wasn't quite as crude, perhaps, but you were pulling some pretty high level humor as well as just having it be enjoyable for young audiences. Did that, is that something that Beavis about how helped with? I, uh, for, for me actually just generally working at Nickelodeon was really helpful mm -hmm. um, for Shrek because uh, one of the tenets of Nickelodeon is uh, to support kids and to say, you are just great the way you are. Right. Right. Uh, there was like an us versus them, meaning, you know, kids versus parents and we Nickelodeon were on your side. Mm -hmm. But part of that was like a celebration of being a kid and all that entails. So if you're making a mess, if, you know, whatever it is, you know, being who you are is like good. It's the right thing. And, and so that was really helpful with Shrek because you know, you have a, a, a character who would normally be kind of the bad guy. That's what ogres are. Mm -hmm. um, but he also has this real kind of like physical, um, dirty, sloppy side to him. And Nickelodeon was really kind of like informative and in, in, mm -hmm. in trying to figure that out. Well, yeah, all this. I mean, Rugrats were the same way. Kids are kids. This is, this is how these kids are. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I never thought I never thought of it that way. But when you say that, it was super pro kid. Like, you know, it was it was everything. Every show you watched on it, there was a, a distinct separation between the adults and and the kids you know you can't do that on tv was formative for me i could watch that show all day long when i was a kid and now when i was a kid only the rich families had nickelodeon so i would have mm. to go to a friend's house to, to watch expanded cable uh, <laughs> i can only imagine what it would be like now if a resurgence with a you can't do that or, or oh I, you know. I i think some of that's overstated myself myself overstated with what that what you could get away with now and what you no, couldn't No, no, no. I yet. mean, how, how kids being able to, to see it 
more readily with streaming and stuff. Oh, you know? I see what you're and, saying. And yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that, that's the, kind of missing. Access. Yeah, it, it. it's kind of it. missing from the market right now. A, a show that is just zany and hey, kids, you know, kids can be kids, and you know, the, the Chuck E. Cheese mentality where a, where a kid can be a kid, you know, <laughs> um, and and in embracing that, it's kind of has gone away and kids are kind of expected to be little mini adults all the time now and, and do homework and be serious. And it's kind of disheartening, you know? So Nickelodeon was very formative for kids of my generation, for sure. I think different world now. Yeah, it really mm -hmm. is. It really is. It really is. And miss the simplicity of, you know, just being able to slime somebody and get it over with. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, as a, as a side note, I watched the, my, my, uh, my teenager now, Decided she wanted to watch the Kids' Choice Awards. Uh, uh, and I hadn't seen one of those in 20 years. If, you know, even then I wasn't a kid when I was like, and how different that is now. It's it's all pretty much based on uh, internet personalities mm -hmm. and all that. And they will mention like, oh yeah, there's this movie that we're giving best movie to. But here's Dua Lupa. And, <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> it, it, uh, or some personality going to do this thing. And I'm like, okay. So it's, it, it is a different world just based on that. I mean, that's their world now is internet. So uh, going back to Shrek, so that's an adaptation, right, of of existing material, but not necessarily, I mean, the concept, right? How is the creative process different than, you know, going from having free reign to keeping it in within a frame? I mean, it's your uh, trailer work in a way, some way, right? That you, you still have this framework of, uh, that you have to sit in, but you have some freedom within that. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, I would say that every single job is different, mm -hmm. you know, and, and Beavis and Butthead was just this unique, you know, blip, mm -hmm. you know, that, oh, you yeah. know, it was not really to be repeated. I'm not working on the the current show, but I, I'm my guess is that there's probably so many things that they are told that they can't do, you know, and, and that will just not pass muster today. And I imagine that's um, kind of a challenge, but you know, something they'll I'm sure they're you know they're doing fine with. Right. So Shrek was different for me in so many ways, you know. And like I said, it's any job would be different. This is a case where I was brought in as a rewrite guy. Mm -hmm. um, they had been working on the movie uh, for quite some time. I I don't know how long, but at least two years, but maybe even longer. Animation, each each case of animation is different from every other case, and a place like DreamWorks has a way of working. That, is, that follows the Disney model. Mm -hmm. And that is a model that is unique and different from a lot of models. I'll give you an example to show the contrast to it. The Beavis and Butthead movie was really a live action experience as far as the writing goes. You know, it was, here's the script. And, you know, I did a, a few rewrites, but here's a script. And they basically treated it a little bit like live like, action, like which a is they make yeah, the script. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a limited budget. And also an existing show and set of characters and an entity. And so they knew their business and they were just about making that in a longer form, you know, in a 90-minute in a form. The DreamWorks model, uh, which is the Disney model, like I said, is, um, is such a different world. And it was my first exposure to that world. And I was kind of shocked when, mm -hmm. I, when I got there and a little dismayed, but I kind of got used to it after a while. That world is such where the, the writing of the script goes hand in hand with the storyboarding of the scenes. And 
very often the the writer the guy in my position will go back and forth and do scenes with the story artist, um, both of them writing. Sometimes a writer will give a script and the storyboard artist will will execute that in storyboard form. But very often, um, and with DreamWorks, I think more often than not, the storyboard artist will come back with his or her own version of the script. And that back and forth will keep going okay. until they get a scene that they feel is working. Makes right. us all laugh, it tells story, all that kind of stuff. That's just one scene. We're talking about a okay, yeah. three-minute piece, right. right? And so what they will do is they will accumulate um, scene after scene after scene in that process until they have, um, say, of almost or all the scenes that you need for the movie, knowing full well that some of those are just going to be horrible or rough, something that you're just going to throw away. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is they'll put those scenes onto video. They'll put the, the storyboards onto video and literally create um, a 90-minute movie in, in storyboard, storyboard form. form. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then we'll sit back and, and watch that movie, realize how awful we are, wonder how it is we get paid to do this, <laughs> and, uh, and then dig into it and just kind of start the process all over, all over again. again. Does, uh, now, I know there, especially with celebrity voices, things like that, would, would that come into play in rewrites? Like, I know the casting changed for that film uh, at least a couple times, right? For like mm -hmm. who was going to be the voice of Shrek who, and the other ones. Did that play into the process then of like, oh, do we have to change it from, you know, Chris Farley's uh, to, to uh, uh, Mike, 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 Mike Myers. Myers? I mean, did that or, or were they playing off of what you gave them or period? Not everybody does this, but DreamWorks has so much clout mm -hmm. and, um, and, and money. They have the budget. And so they're able to work with the, the actual actors. Mm -hmm. And there's a great luxury to that, right? Because mm -hmm. you know what the performance is going to be. And so where things are not working, you make changes. Uh, very often, uh, and you probably know this, in animation, uh, you have to work with, not have to, but you work with actors who do or kind of do scratch voices. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not the actual actors, but they're really good actors who will create you know the role give you a visual uh, a visual uh, <laughs> uh, an audio of what you might be dealing right. with right yeah and i've actually worked with with one of those actors on uh, curious george and mm -hmm. um um and he was great and i worked with him you know later i'm asking myself if he wants his name mentioned here i'm thinking maybe not um but he's he's terrific and and so at DreamWorks, um, okay, Jonathan Magnum, now, now you know, that's you, uh, Magnum. So at DreamWorks, um, they have the luxury of, of, of working with the actual actors, and, and that's huge, right? Because, for instance, um, early on when Chris Farley was still playing Shrek, uh, Eddie Murphy was, was doing voices, and Eddie Murphy is not just a really funny actor, uh, but he improvs a lot. And right. so he brought so much to that character of Donkey. And so it becomes this kind of co creating process. Right. You and know, you, and you were saying that's kind of what you were doing with the storyboarder. So is it kind of like right. a three pronged attack at that point? You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. more than three prongs because yeah. um, DreamWorks is like this think tank of, of people who, who work in animation. And so on all of their movies, what they do is uh, after the movie is screened, after you collect everything and you create the animatic, you create this 90 minute black and white storyboard version, you know, going from one, cutting from one storyboard to the next storyboard to tell your story. Then they get all of 
the whole creative team at DreamWorks, which are all the story artists working on all the films, all the directors, um, all the producers, mm -hmm. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, <laughs> um, just the everything. And so you get all this feedback um, and there's just nothing like feedback to know what's working and what's not. Well, and that actually I was kind of curious, too, you know, when you come in as a to do rewrites, I imagine you have a lot of interaction with the other writers, correct? To talk to them and kind of find out what their impetus was. And actually, it's kind of the, the opposite. opposite. Okay, great. You, um, they make it a point to have you never meet the other writer. And in a way, the other writer doesn't want to meet you hmm. because okay. your job is basically to destroy what they've done. <laughs> that makes and, sense. Um, that makes sense. Take as little of it as you need or as possible, depending on what kind of a writer you are. Right. But basically, you're the you're the doctor who comes in to fix whatever what the last <laughs> doctor did. Right. Yeah, like remove, the sponge, remove yeah. the sponges and the bad and it's not like and people have done bad stuff but it's really more that writing really is a process sure and i you know you might think of it as moving a ball from you know yard one all the way across the field and if a writer gets it to the 50 yard line well that writer has done great work sure. and you know sometimes you need another writer to come in and, and carry it to places that you don't think it's you don't know where it has to go right Right. After that. Right. And that's that, that I'm really glad you clarified that because I don't think a lot of people understand how that process works. So I certainly obviously didn't. Well, yeah, I, I mean, if you, if you right. look on like say an IMDb and it's you know, written by this, this and this, you know, and they don't understand the handoff, you know, is is involved sometimes. Yeah. And like you just said. And that makes it look like it was like a writing team, you know, that we're all working together because it doesn't differentiate, you know. So I'm really, really glad you clarified that because a lot of listeners have no idea how that process works, myself included. Just really quickly, when you see a name and the word and and another name, that's usually a writing team. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when you see names, you know, piled on top of another, those are usually disparate writers who you awesome. know, probably Stages. have nothing to do with each other. Right. Oh, okay, great. Mm -hmm. Except they show up at the premiere and, and, and try not to talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your, was uh, Planet 51 your first solo feature? The one that you, you wrote by yourself or was that? Uh, I'm sorry, which uh, one? Planet 51? Was it? Was, oh, yeah. Uh, that actually was, oh, it's raining out. It's beautiful. I'm sorry, but oh, no, yeah. rain in LA, it's yeah. a little bit like what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, like, oh go. my God, it's raining. It's rain. <laughs> um, Planet began as a, was a rewrite. Okay, that was um, a rewrite. Mm -hmm. um, almost everything I've done that I'm credited on uh, uh, has been a rewrite. But I'm, I, I have a sole credit because it was a very, very thorough rewrite. Okay. And that was a case where, and I just got to, you know, give, give some... The only word I can think of is snaps. That really like, boy, does that age me. But uh, get some snaps to the the, the producers and, and the story artists and the and the directors. They began, that is a, a Spanish film. Mm -hmm. And there's this company in Spain uh, that really wanted to get into the animation game. And they um, said, we're going to make a movie. And they came up with this really great setting, um, this other planet. Um, and the, base, the big idea uh, that they came up with is it's a reverse invasion story where a NASA astronaut shows up at a planet and they're in their own kind of like 1950s and freaking out because of the invasion. Right. <laughs> and um, I I love the idea and I love the artwork that they did. They they just yeah, the have done such is, amazing yeah, stuff. The reverse of mania, the, the right. exactly the 50s. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I I kind of took it in a in a direction that they weren't quite going in, but I thought it would be a really 
fun direction. And that's kind of how that kind of came to be. Very often, a lot of rewrite work involves that. It, uh, you know, a writer, an outside writer comes along and has a, you know, viewpoint that you may not have had, you know, during right, the process. Right. And, or, you know, I mean, you always see that, you know, uh, you know, we like the concept, but we want something, you know, different. Then that's when they bring the rewrites. In. Sometimes like, that's like, the direction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We want different. <laughs> it's like, we don't know. What? Like some of, something about this we like. But, but that is the point of <laughs> yeah. writers. The point of writers is to bring something that, um, say, the producer would not have necessarily mm -hmm. thought of or the last writer would not have thought of. That's, that's, that's why we're here. So when you use the, uh, the analogy of moving the ball from the five to the, all the way to the 50, what is your process for when you personally get to the 50 and you feel like you can't move the ball? How do you deal with roadblocks? And, and, and challenges of keeping the story moving for yourself? Um, I find self-hate and flagellation is usually the, the, the most important Strong. part of We're my process. We're a lot more alike than you probably know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, this isn't exactly answering your question, but I will just say that writing something from scratch is a lot harder than taking an existing screenplay that may be rife with flaws, figuring out, what's wrong, figuring out where you where you think it should really go, what makes sense to you, mm -hmm. and then writing it. It's just so much easier to take something that exists and uh, and run with it. Sure. And um, in a sort of similar way, if you're writing genre, that is innately easier because I'll give you an example. I, I was hired to do a, a kind of a reboot of Dark Man. Mm. And I found it you know, once I had the idea of it, the writing of it felt like it wasn't rocket science because it was a, a genre and it was very, you know, it was a reboot. So it wasn't the same story as the first one, but you knew where it had to go because that's the, the nature of this. genres, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. you know, right. genre is such that you're, you know, a lot is already spelled out for you mm -hmm. coming in. Writing something that is, you know, from scratch and that is not genre at all is the hardest thing for me. And I think the th it's what I admire the most. You know, when I see, say, independent films, I'm blown away. And uh, are you are you getting noise? Do you need no, to? I, no, I'm just trying to. I, I think I can hear the rain. It actually is kind of calming. <laughs> That's a nice feeling. Yeah, we can we can kill the rain if you want. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Strike the rain. <laughs> anyway, that's that's. I, I say all that because I'm I'm just uh, working on something now that's both from scratch and also not really genre and finding it like hugely challenging. Screenplay or no? Uh, screenplay. Okay. What, what, is your, what is your process? Are you an outline guy? Are you uh, um, like, a, like a grouping? You write ideas down and then kind of organize them later? How, what is your, your creative process? I, I do what most writers do, which is you, you always want to create a smaller piece um, so that you... Uh, have something to work from, you know, every step along the way. Sure. For instance, you might start with what's called a one-pager or, or two-pager. And that just basically, for one thing, it, it outlines the, the basic idea, but it also gives you something to show others so you can vet and get feedback and find out, you know, is this something viable? Is it not viable? That sort of thing. Okay. And then once you have something that's viable and, and a few people are kind of like, you know, giving you a sense that, yeah, there's, there's maybe a place for this. Then the next step for me, and I think for a lot of writers, is to outline it. And that 
could be anywhere from 12 to 25 pages uh, wow. for, for a feature. Wow. You know, less, obviously, if it's uh, TV. Right. Um, you know, even less if it's half-hour TV. But that's so invaluable. It's a, I, I liken it to, um, you know, when you're climbing Mount Everest, you have these, what are they called? These camps where you yeah. kind of oh, start. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you don't try to do the whole thing at once because it'll just, you know, force you to come tumbling backwards <laughs> off the mountain. <laughs> right. Basically. Right. And it makes sense. Have steps and, you know, because you have to sleep, you have to eat, you know, places to leave off where you can step away for a minute. You know, do you find that, what do you, you know, when you hit a, when you hit a block, is it kind of like a... Like the only way I can think of to explain it is when you're working on a computer, you know, and they have save states, you know, do you kind of, if you hit a block, do you kind of go back to a spot that you think is, okay, I know this is solid. Can I go back to this and use that to kind of inform what I'm going to do next? Or mm. how, do, how do you deal with that process within your process, if that makes sense? No, it definitely makes sense. You know, I think every writer would give you a different answer to mm. that. Um I'm I'm somebody who deals a lot with uh, self doubt and mm -hmm. um, plenty of demons, sure. um, and I experienced this um, actually just in the last few months working on an outline uh, for the screenplay, and I experienced this more than I have in a long, long time. I mean, maybe even before the whole TV thing, before Nickelodeon and Pete and Pete, um, I was experiencing this, which is this feeling of not being, you know, like good enough, not being worthy, um, being kind of like a really crappy writer. And, oh, uh, imposter syndrome. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's yeah. most definitely there's that. Mm -hmm. And I think a, a lot of us have this thing where we'll, um, we'll kind of like look, when we look at ourselves, we'll just see all the negative stuff mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. forget about the positive yep. stuff. And really the only antidote to that and it's not an antidote that makes it go away, but it's a way to um, keep going despite that. And it's a way to actually, I think, succeed, you know, despite all that. And despite all that kind of like inner turmoil and inner pain is to come hell or high water, get yourself to the end. As bad as it can possibly be or needs to be, um, do nothing, have no goal except get to the end. And, and I'll tell you, there's a few reasons behind that. One is the voice inside that looks for where you suck is not the truth, but it sure seems like the truth. It's loud, right? And the longer we kind of stick with that and, and, and indulge it or, or, or allow it and focus on it, the harder it is to take steps forward. And it's really all about taking steps forward. And I'm, you know, like I said, I've been living this really, really recently, more so than I have in, in 30 years. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the reason why you want to get to the end is A, so you don't let that stuff stop you because that's the way to not be a writer is when you say to that voice, you know what, you're right. And the honorable thing for me to do is to admit that I'm not really good enough and just stop. You know, when you don't do that, what you're doing is you're not giving in to that internal like cliff that you want to fall down mm -hmm. and you get yourself to where you kind of put all your energy into something that's doable, which is to say a draft that you know is going to be at best imperfect mm -hmm. and at worst, possibly really terrible. Right. Terrible in this case is wonderful. 
And the reason terrible is wonderful is because the only thing that matters for me and my process, and I think for a lot of writers, is the words, the end. And here's the other reason why this is so important and why you really want to get there. Because once you've gotten to the end, then your job is not to write, then your job is to rewrite. Mm -hmm. And rewriting is a whole different ballgame. I had alluded to that before. Rewriting is easier, you know, when somebody's like done X, Y, and Z. You can Z. do it surgically if you need to, right? You can go in there surgically and, and pick the top parts you want to work on at, at, at any time, right? That's Well, surgically implies that there's only like going to be select things to no, be no, worked I, on. But and, I mean, and you but are on gonna, a given day, you can say, I just want to work on this. But that's true. To, yeah, yeah. You, it's, it becomes finite. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what you're saying. You know, now instead of climbing this whole mountain, I'm at this certain juncture and I can work on this one juncture and I'm safe. I'm not going to fall off the mountain. Mm -hmm. It's finite. Also, writing really is rewriting. That's what it's all about. And you can't rewrite if you don't have something to rewrite from. And having created something, even if it's bad, even if it's really quite bad, you will find that it still gets you, going back to that analogy, it still gets you to the 10 yard line. Mm -hmm. And you were not at the 10 yard line before. Right. You were at right. the zero yard line. Right. And so being at the 10 yard line, now I can get to 12 yards because I can do this and this and this. And for a lot of writers, you also have this. When you create a bad document, you'll find there are some good nuggets in there. Maybe not a lot, but maybe more than you might expect, a few good nuggets. And those exist, they don't go away because they're saved in, in, you know, in your document. And so you have something that you can build on and, and make better. And most of all, for me, you haven't given in to the part of you that says, shit, you suck. Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you've gone forward anyway. Right, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's not dissimilar to like acting process. Especially when we're doing now, we're doing self tapes all the time because that's the thing. And so you get an audition, you got a several pages. And for me, and I know a lot of other actors, we just getting that first cut down, that first, you know, just finish it. Cause a lot of your, hey, you get in your head so often, like, oh, I did that wrong. So let's start over, let's start over, let's start over. You know, just having that first clean, even if it's imperfect cut means that now, okay, that's, that's out of there, that's done. Now I'm just gonna be working on the thing I know I can do. That's exactly right. You know, before we, you mentioned expectation and, and I was kind of like giving expectation some, some, you know, negative, whatever. Sorry, I, we've been talking for a while, so I may be a little less articulate. Expectation is wicked. It's a, it's a killer. And by allowing yourself to be okay with this one little part mm -hmm. of the take that you've done and so you can do on, go on the rest, you've immediately freed yourself from this really brutal expectation that the whole thing is good. Absolutely. And that's the great thing about writing. And I'm glad to hear that that can be part of the mm -hmm. acting process too, which is you don't have to kind of like poop out perfection because no, because you can't. You get to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and work on it over time. Well, I think that's, that is uh, probably a misconception that a lot of people have of any artistic endeavor that it just it's pooped out whole, you know, that, uh, you know, that, you know, be it, uh, you know, an artist doing pottery work and, you know, they're, they're like, oh no, I got to mush that up and do it again. This, this part of it, but you know, I have the structure or, you know, uh, in, in a movie, like they, they're like, no, we're going to redo that scene all over. Cause now we see it doesn't work. 
uh, artists will be like, no, I'm painting over that part right there. And this part's good. But, you know, it never it rarely happens in one chunk, one fell swoop that the creative product is what everybody sees at the end. You know, it's it's that way in, in any creative process. And mm -hmm. the truth is, you know, nobody gets life right. I mean, you know, if we could, you know, apply acceptance to whatever it is that we're doing, man, our, our burden would be so much lighter. Oh, yeah. And and, and I, I was sitting here. I don't know if you could see. I was I could feel myself grinning like an idiot because I was listening. You weren't just giving writing advice. You were giving life advice because you were applying. Uh, it's very similar to if someone is suffering from depression. You know, they want to lay in bed. They don't want to start the thing, you know, and if it, a lot of the advice is it, just get up and make your bed. That's all you got to do. Don't don't look another step further. Get up and make your bed. And it may not look great, but by getting up and doing that project from beginning to end, then you will ideally move on to the next thing that you can do. You take a shower and you'll feel better and then you move on to another thing and then you can actually get out the door and maybe go to work or school and by having a process of continually completing the thing it breaks it up into smaller bites so that it's not so overwhelming that's the key right yeah. there is is having the smaller goals the smaller this or that mm -hmm. versus the expectation of a, a, an idea yeah. about you know something that's big here. which yeah. immediately becomes um a reason to kind of stay in bed because right. it's, mm -hmm. it's too much. Right. I'm, uh, I, I heard um, somebody in this um, group that I'm in, a meditation group, uh, offer a quote yesterday about how it's not our feelings that are the problem. It's our feelings about the feelings uh, that are the problem. 100%. Yeah, I would the agree The questioning yeah. of those, yeah. And the same with ideas. You know, mm -hmm. the mind has, has ideas about, you know, and I do, the, and this was what was killing me in this outline is, well, I've been doing this so long that, you know, it's not acceptable yeah, for me yeah. to like, do anything uh -huh. but great. And that's death to any kind of achievement. Yeah, because I mean, it is honestly, without trying to be incredibly deep here, it's, it's the ability to fail that gives so much more texture to succeeding. You know, if, if you feel like you can't fail, is there really going to be a whole lot of depth? That's to a the lot thing of pressure. That, yeah. And, and unrealistic. Right. Because mm -hmm. you right. don't have room to. Right. Just to move. Yeah. And it's just, it's more comfortable. It's more laid back. Uh, so, I mean, I honestly, and I'm not just blowing smoke. I think that that is tremendous life advice, not just advice for writers, but I think it's tremendous life advice to, to get to the finish. Even if you finish last, get there. You know, I have a buddy who runs half marathons. He's six foot five, 350 pounds, but he finishes everyone. He may be the last guy. It may be getting dark, but he'll go do it because he just wants to be able to say, you know what? I finished that thing. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's a, that's accomplishment. Yeah, it is. More so even than winning the race, I think, because it's pretty easy once you're good to like be fast. But if you haven't gotten fast yet to still finish the race, that's pretty amazing, really. I guess, you know, when you think about finishing the race, that's kind of like goal or pie in the sky or, you know, kind of like, um, you know, a wish. Um, what we're talking about is process mm -hmm. and uh, and nothing really gets done without without process. Right. Yeah. So uh, you then went back to some live action stuff, right? Uh, the uh, Gulliver's Travels and then uh, Kirby Buckets were live action. Was that an adjustment to go back? I mean, everything's storyboarded to an extent, right? But was there 
you know, another shift back to what you were doing earlier with Pete and Pete and stuff like that? Well, people who aren't, um, people may not know this who aren't necessarily in the business, but writers who do both animation and live action, or just, I would say actually just screenwriters in general, you do so many more jobs than people will know because mm -hmm. most of what you work on doesn't get made. Sure. And so, yeah, you can, in a given, you know, say 10 year span, you can be working on three, you know, uh, live action screenplays for assignment and, and three animated okay. assignment pieces. So, so, it's not, so there's not yeah. really an organized, it may look organized, but it is sure, it's entirely it, it, yeah, random it's, it's just, okay. and uh, accidental. So the man who came and went, uh, ah, yes. Joe's book. Joe's <laughs> book. How, how did uh, you come to doing a novel? I mean, well, first of all, thanks for asking about that because you know that's a that's something that I'm just like out there in the world, you know, trying to like get out in the world. Mm -hmm. That story began as a screenplay. Okay. Um, I actually started the screenplay in the early '90s, and yes, that is a little bit weird and embarrassing to say. So here's a here's a story with that. I um, okay, I'll tell you this whole story. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. For. Absolutely. Yeah. So after college, I did really well in college making movies. I made movies every year. They were kind of like, you know, well received. I felt like a million bucks. I felt like Joey Mini Spielberg. That's what I felt. <laughs> yep. I wasn't really that person, but that's what I, I, I felt like. And so after college, I talked uh, a very unfortunate friend of mine into uh joining me in making a short film. We each were going to put $5,000 of our savings into making this um, abstract experimental short film that I was uh, completely convinced, um, just, a, just a no brainer. It was going to win the Academy Award for short film. For <laughs> short film. Yeah. Yeah. How hard could that be? It's a short film, yeah. right? What's the competition <laughs> there? Um, <laughs> and the extent to which I fell on my face uh, was, was just like epic on that movie. I mean, there's falling off the horse and then there's falling off the horse and your body hits the ground so hard that there's maybe this much of your body, a quarter of an inch above the ground and the rest is just kind of smushed into the ground. That was, that was my experience making, making, making a, a short film out of college. It's amazing how much support you have in college when you're making a short film and how little money you have to spend. And you've got a crew right there and everything you need and it's black and white and they need to process the, the film for you. Anyway, after that, after I crashed and burned on that film, uh, I thought, well, I'm going to make a feature, but it's going to be so low budget that I can just go out with a crew of like two or three people and... It, we're just going to like do, do it in the, in the world's most piecemeal yep. fashion. And I, I got this idea for something and uh, I made a, uh, like a, like a, this amazing, funny little two minute teaser for it and, and took it to a, I, the IMF, IMFP market, what's it called? The independent film market. Yeah. And I wrote a feature length screenplay for it and um, and showed the short at the market. And the short was a hit and everybody wanted to read the script. And I realized the script was complete shit. It was just like nothing. It was like, I couldn't show it. I wouldn't show it to anybody, it's terrible. And so what I began to do at that point was to rewrite the script. And in the, in the within a year, I threw the entire thing out because it was nothing. But I began to rewrite it from scratch with the intent that it was still going to be an easy to make, 
indie film. It was going to, it was like all in one location. Mostly it was a diner, but it was a small town. It was going to be in a diner and it was going to be at this person's trailer home. It was going to be really super easy. And I, I cranked out a draft and I cranked out a third, a second and a third draft. And I kind of felt it was pretty good. And I, I kind of thought it was, I was on my way. And around that time, I came out to L.A. because Pete and Pete was done, Beefs and Butthead, the movie was done. And I, and, um, I just came out here just because I thought, cool, I'll be, I'll be able to get some work and, mm -hmm. and try to get this movie made. Well, every draft I did of this screenplay, while it had a lot of really good stuff in it, and it was pretty well received and there were people who wanted to work on it in various ways, it was still not getting there. And I began a process of doing a draft, going off to do a job for hire, coming back to the draft and realizing, oh, that's really not there yet. And then rewriting it between the jobs and then right. going off to do another job. And honestly, after 20 years of that, it was still not there. It was, it was like, you know, the main character was just, I didn't understand him. People who read it didn't quite get him. There were people who kind of wanted to make it like good people who were like mm -hmm. getting involved with it. But I was still like feeling like it wasn't there. So in that period of time, that long historic past, you know, like lifetime period of time, mm -hmm. the indie market kind of cratered and there was not really going to be a, a home for this movie. I knew that I could I could get like one to five million dollars somehow and, and try to go make it myself. But maybe it would get a showing on Netflix and, you know, sure. never come close to making its money back. And when I kind of realized after a while that it wasn't going to happen, I thought I want to at least get it off my computer. And I sat down to write it as a novel. And I, I swear to you, the minute, you know, like the first paragraph when I began uh, and I chose one of, this, one of the characters to be the storyteller, the, voice, yeah. the whole thing kind of like snapped into place. And I realized, oh, my God, how stupid am I that I only saw a movie you right. know, for I mean, this. Is that, did you, so you found that having a, a narrator, the, the internal voice to push through the story, freed it up to be something. It was that, but it was also who the narrator was. She's a 16 year old mm -hmm. girl. She, you know, I just like, I love her, adore her as a character. And I kind of am her, I feel her, mm -hmm. I feel what she goes through. And so like, I kind of had me telling the story, but also kind of like one of my favorite beings, you know, not a human being, but a, a being to me. Right. And in the novel form, I felt like I no longer had to try to fit who this character, the other character, the main character was, this guy, Bill. Right. Had to fit him into something that an audience I, I felt would tolerate. Like right. I could just, you know, talk about like releasing expectations. I was kind of able to let him be. And that gave him room to kind of like to manifest and, and so. Sure. So, I mean, more of the, the you know, because it's show me versus tell me a lot of times in TV and, and film and, and you're able to do more tell. Would that be fair? I, I know why you say that. And that makes a lot of sense. With this particular character, you know, he is um, a spirit who did not want to become a human being because all the human beings that you know, come here, you start out as a baby and you completely believe in being human. You forget everything that you knew before you became a human and you will be that way until you die. And this person that you've become is gone. And he was like, uh, no, that's not going to be for me because 
because you all get so caught up mm. in being human and it's a rough kind of place here and I don't want to sign up for that. And so he comes in in an already existing body that had just passed and he comes in in order to experience being human because everybody's kind of wild about it. They keep coming back. They keep doing it. He was like, I, I want to see what yeah. it's like. But I don't want to commit to it. I don't want to get caught up in it. I don't want to get lost yeah. like you all seem to get lost. That's a hard thing to get across in a movie right. where you don't want to be pandemic. Pandem not pandemic. What's pandentic? the word? Pandemic is on my mind. Pandemic. 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 And so having not having to worry about that in the novel gave me so much more freedom to kind of like express that character. And now I feel like if I ever had the opportunity, I could take that now that I know who he is and put it back into oh, really? a, okay. into a yeah, screenplay. And that was the other question I had is like, so did that, did, did that free it up to like, well, if somebody does read it and say, well, we would like to make that, you, you know, oh, for sure. <laughs> I'd love that challenge. Perfect. I'd love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know where it would go now. Sometimes you, I guess it's all, you know, like for me, like, I have to kind of learn through getting it wrong and, and like mm -hmm. a lot of us do. And, and so this was just a long process to get to where I could finally like find what I was looking for. But now that I know what it is, yeah. I yeah. I mean, but that just tells you, I mean, 30 years to get, you know, for one story to make its way. Right. You know, and I mean, thankfully, you weren't on contract to do it or anything. So you had the time to be able to go. It wasn't what it is. And, and we're able to finally come to it, which is also probably gratifying, right? To actually have that get to the end and go, OK, I, I found it. Yeah, most, most definitely. You know, when you when you do a novel, when you write a novel, you you, you kind of have to have low expectations. I think there's something like a million books that mm -hmm. come out every year. I knew that if nothing else, you know, came of the novel, you know, at least getting, you know, finding what I was after mm -hmm. was, was really worth it. And it, it does feel like it, it's, um, I'm, I'm happy with ultimately with the result. So what did that do for you uh, as far as the screenwriting? Because you, you just said you're working on some new stuff. Did that, that did, did it change your perspective now, uh, now that you're on the other side of writing the novel? Has that changed uh, how you are doing your, your screenwriting? I, I guess I don't know. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll just have to sure. see yeah, uh, yeah. as I go forward. You know, I'm, this the thing that I'm working on now is is less of a formula that I'm familiar with. I, I don't think it is quite a formula. It's more characters, you know, and, and you know, interacting with what they're going through. That sounds that's the dullest description. <laughs> and uh, feel free to edit that out. <laughs> um, I'm trying in this piece to be a little bit more grounded in, in the characters. You know, when you when you write in entertainment, uh, sometimes it's the bigger motions of broader storytelling that mm -hmm. kind of trumps certain things. You always want to have humanity and character. Right. Um, but it's these but big sometimes swings that you, drive it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It drives the bigger mo moves drive it sometimes. Yeah. So since we've been talking about so so much about the creative process and everything, which is exactly what I wanted to do. So I'm, my cup is filling as we talk because I'm selfish. What, what have you written that its success surprised you? Either it's lack of success or it's overwhelming success. Has there been anything that you've written and went, I did not expect this to do this well, or I fully expected this to be a slam dunk and it, 
unfortunately didn't work out that way. Can you think of anything? Maybe everything. Ah, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I was shocked um, when I was younger uh, working on Pete and Pete and Beavis and Butthead just because I had spent so long um, trying, trying, and working and, and not succeeding and, um, and feeling, you know, kind of bad about myself and, mm -hmm. uh, and just going through, you know, what I think a lot of writers go through in, in the, in the startup process. And so working on two things that I, and I was, I take a step back. I was really proud of both of those mm -hmm. things. Some people would say you were proud of Beavis and Butthead, but I, I was, and I was, I was stunned by the success, you know, that it was having. And Pete and Pete didn't have that same level of success, but you know, the, the, the pride in it was tangible for me, you mm -hmm. know? And so, it went against my ideas about myself, you know, somebody who works on two things that I, I feel really great about. And one of which was, you know, getting a lot, a lot of attention and, and really succeeding. I, you know, obviously the, the big answer to that question is Shrek just stunned me and, and stunned everybody. You know, I, I think the people at DreamWorks knew that it was, uh, you know, getting to be really good, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as they worked on it. At a certain point, the writing was done. And so... There was a, I forget how long, it was six months or a year between the time my work ended and, and, and I went to the screening in Westwood to see the finished film with an audience. And I, I was stunned by, you know, the animation and by um, all the wonderful touches that, that they had added and, and by just how well it worked. So that itself was stunning. And when it was successful, that just like was was just completely mind blowing. On the other hand, I you know I, I thought Planet Fifty One would be you know um, as successful just because hey it happened once of course it's going to happen <laughs> right, yeah. right 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 one doesn't have control over that sort of stuff absolutely absolutely and that's kind of the idea behind the question is like you know you can go into something and there's a certain point where you let go and you send your baby off into the world and maybe it flunks out of college and maybe it becomes a extremely successful adult but there's a certain point when it's kind of just out of your hands and then you can either be surprised by the result or disappointed and then yeah you know what's amazing about that is how much is really out of our hands yeah you know my um we were talking about the mind and and how that works and maybe it's a, a function of being older or maybe because i'm in a different point in my career where there's you know very little assignment work out there just available um and so i have more time and the mind you know like has all these ideas about controlling the outcome of my life mm -hmm. and the most important things in my life that have come along were completely out of my control. And, you know, it's a funny thing. Maybe it's an older person thing, because I think a lot of older people get this, where, like, the further along you are, and honestly, the less time you see going forward, the more you feel like you have to kind of, like, be in charge, you know, of X amount of money that's going to come in, and the plumbing where you live, and is there a leak in the roof, and what about this person, and have I said the right thing here? And, and it's all a function of ideas, you know, mm -hmm. expectation, as we were talking about. Yep. And what I've begun to realize is that there is a kind of constriction um, that, that comes along with that. And that the very thing that you think is meant to give you the life that you want is actually doing quite the opposite. It's shutting out everything that could come to you. And so part of what, for me, what the lesson is at this point in my life is becoming aware 
that I'm of what I'm doing and that the mind is is kind of like trying really to run the show. My mind has never, ever been qualified <laughs> exactly. to run the show. Yeah. Hey, same, I, same. I, yeah, I, same I, thing. There's a lot to be said for being present. And I think we talked about this a little bit yesterday too. Uh, you know, so many people miss out on so much because they're not present in whatever moment they're in because they're so worried about controlling everything around them or controlling their experiences. And it's simple as going on a vacation. You know, you have a plan on a vacation. You're going to stop at this place, at this place, at this place. You're going to take this photo and this photo and you're, you're going to learn about this thing and take this tour. And meanwhile, you don't see anything that's happening around you. Because you, you you refuse to be present, and that's just such a weird uh, concept. I, I, my my mind goes to Clark Griswold at the uh, uh, Grand Canyon in in uh, vacation, where they stop at the Grand Canyon. He just nods his head and he goes, oh, "Okay, we're gone. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta go. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. We're moving on." We can, we can, and you know, with social media now, it's like all I got to do is is post it to social media, and that means I enjoyed it, right? So I'll just do that. I don't have to actually enjoy it. I'll just move on to the next thing. But being present, whether it's your career um, or, or your, your home life or whatever, and I think that's kind of part of it is if you're trying to control it so much that you don't actually experience it is almost the definition of insanity, you know, because if you're not experiencing the thing, what do you care if it's under control mm. or not? You know, a third of our lives is spent sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. Every single night when we, when we put our heads on the pillow or sometime very soon thereafter, hopefully – we're gone, right? We we let go of everything. We are not inside our body. And the body, while we're not there, is using this opportunity to do whatever reset that it has to do. So many things happen during the night. Every single single day of, of our life, there's not a day that goes by except that really, really rare all-nighter that we don't entirely let go of everything of who we are. And sometimes we'll dream about stuff, but very often that may be like about processing what, what's going on. That says a lot about how important letting go is. And there's all different ways that that takes place. For some of us, it's, it's an addiction, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, I'm gonna eat this chocolate and the nuts and I'm going to kind of zone out, you know, while I do it. Or I'm gonna use a substance that's harmful mm -hmm. or I'm gonna go on vacation or, or whatever it is. What I find is that at every juncture in my life, there are sand traps that every other person has kind of like hit their ball into, has gone into, as, mm -hmm. you know, and we kind of have to learn what they are as, as, as we go. And so I'm at a point where my current sand trap is like, oh, mind. Oh, yeah. mind. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, and I, I don't want to be like pretentious to say it's just all creative types, but because I think it's everybody. It is. Uh, you know, because I always think about, you know, you spend so much your, I did spend a lot of my time looking forward and not being where I'm at. You know, it's like, okay, even when I had some successes, I'm like, okay, that's not the end. That's, that's what, what's next. Where are we? You know, which, you know, is beneficial to drive you forward sometimes, but when that's your sole focus, 
Yeah, it's it, it, you never reset. Yeah. You never get that reset of just like, okay, I'm in the moment. Today's a new moment. And, you know, yeah. And what good is success if you're not enjoying it? If you don't take the time to actually process Legacy. it, enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's, it's so hard. Peopling is hard. Humaning, Peopling humaning is, is hard. hard. You know, I, I, I looked at my night stand and there's actually not a manual for, <laughs> for like how to... You know, the care and operation of a human body and the human being that's, you know, and, and we find it as we go and we forget it as we go mm -hmm. because, you know, we get really caught up. It's a little bit like that, that character who doesn't want to get caught up. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's what happens. It's what's happening. And I've always told everyone, I've never learned anything by doing something right. It's that's always yeah. making mistakes that I've learned the most from. And I, I wish people would realize that making mistakes is valuable. You know, that's this, this idea of perfection or I'm never get, wrong. I'm never wrong yeah. getting it right the first time. And, and along with I'm never wrong, the ability to apologize. You can be wrong a ton and say, I'm sorry and mean it. Be like, mm -hmm. I screwed up, man. And once you find that everything else is gravy, you know, and that goes with screwing up, you know, writing, writing like, Oh, I wasn't right there. Oh, okay, cool. Sometimes the, the creative process is writing, you know, uh, visual art, acting, almost any kind that you come up with. It's a little bit of a, and this is a pretentious word to use, but it's a little bit of a way, which is to say it, it, can, it shows you things about yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's a process, you have to learn it. It's a craft, it's a skill. And that forces you to, you know, go places that you may not otherwise go. Excellent way to describe it. You know, I, I, I'm excited about doing these conversations because invariably they will always bring something that I didn't expect. And, and this, Joe, thank you so much sure. for sharing with us the, the thing that you do, because along with simply talking about your process and um, your, your life, you've shared so much that can be applied to so many other things. So, and that's kind of the crux that what we're trying to get to is like, look, people have different lives. They have different experiences. They have different things that they do that can be applied to all kinds of different people and all kinds of different experiences and ultimately speak to who we are and we're all just people. Well, and I, I would like to think, I mean, some of our guests are like, I was not expecting this to be what it was, that it opens up for our guests sometimes, like being talking about their life, their process is, is somewhat freeing as well, hopefully. For sure. It's a, a little bit of a form of therapy, you know, when yeah, you talk about what goes on. But yeah, I mean, yep. it's it's like somebody, this is what I do. So my question then for you is, do you guys take insurance? Uh, <laughs> better yet we just won't charge you at all he's offering let me let me let me check um uh so you have uh, joestillman.com yeah yeah uh, that's my website and predictably uh, yes uh it has information about your book and your projects and what yes, you're currently working on uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with anybody before we uh, sign off? Should I? I guess I'll just mention my social media. Yeah. Did yeah. I feed too much into it? Uh, Instagram is, gosh, what am, I, what am I on Instagram? <laughs> I think I might be Joe the Stillman on <laughs> Instagram. Joe the Stillman. Joe the Stillman. <laughs> and I've started posting on TikTok, and I think that's Joe Stillman author. Okay. okay. Great. And I'm on Facebook too, but I, I don't really remember. 
Yeah. <laughs> something to do with Joe Stolman. Something to do with Joe Stolman, hopefully. Yeah. One of the one of the few that are probably on there. You're, you're the pleasant one. So, <laughs> so I, I can't thank you enough, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing with us what you oh. do. And thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for, for having, having me on. This, is, this is great. It's a really fun conversation. I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed because we certainly did. So thank you very much. Rock on. It wasn't right there. Oh, okay. Cool. Sometimes the, the creative processes, writing, you know, uh, visual art, acting, almost any kind that you come up with, it's a little bit of a, and this is a pretentious word to use, but it's a little bit of a way, which is to say it, it, can, it shows you things about yourself, mm -hmm. you know, like it's a process, you have to learn it, it's a craft, it's a skill, and that forces you to, you know, go places that you may not otherwise go. Excellent way to describe it. You know, I, I, I'm excited about doing these conversations because invariably they will always bring something that I didn't expect. And, and this, Joe, thank you so much sure. for sharing with us the, the thing that you do, because along with simply talking about your process, and um, your, your life, you've shared so much that can be applied to so many other things. So, and that's kind of the crux that what we're trying to get to is like, look, people have different lives. They have different experiences. They have different things that they do that can be applied to all kinds of different people and all kinds of different experiences and ultimately speak to who we are and we're all just people. Well, and I, I would like to think, I mean, some of our guests are like, I was not expecting this to be what it was, that it opens up for our guests sometimes, like being talking about their life, their process is, is somewhat freeing as well, hopefully. For sure. It's a, a little bit of a form of therapy, you know, when yeah, you're talking about what goes on. But yeah, I mean, yep. it's, it's like, somebody, this is what I do. So my question then for you is, do you guys take insurance? Uh, <laughs> better yet we just won't charge you at all how's that sound Brilliant. Brilliant. he's offering That's my um, uh, let me let me let me check um uh so you have uh, joestillman.com yeah yeah uh, that's my website and predictably uh, yes uh it has information about your book and your projects and what yes, you're currently working on uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with anybody before we uh, sign off? Should I? I guess I'll just mention my social media. Yeah. Did yeah. I feed too much into it? Uh, Instagram is, gosh, what am, I, what am I on Instagram? <laughs> I think I might be Joe the Stillman on Instagram. <laughs> Joe, the Stillman. Joe the Stillman. And I've started posting on TikTok, and I think that's Joe Stillman author. Okay. okay great. And I'm on Facebook too, but I, I don't really remember. <laughs> I have something to do with Joe Stolman. Something to do with Joe Stolman, hopefully. Yeah. One of the one of the few that are probably on there. You're, you're the pleasant one. So, <laughs> so I, I can't thank you enough, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing with us what you oh, do. My, thanks for having. Thank us. you. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, for having, having me on. This, is, this was great. It's a really fun conversation. I'm Appreciate glad. It. I'm glad you enjoyed because we certainly did. So thank you very much. Rock on.